This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Bob Tabador. This week, two guests, two really, really interesting and good guests. First up, Chelsea Jane. She is a national baseball writer for the Washington Post. And prior to that assignment, covered the 2020 U.S. presidential election. And then before that was a national beat writer for the Post. So she's had just an amazing transition over the last uh, three years from going from covering the nationals to covering U.S. politics at the highest level to being a national baseball writer. And we talk about that transition and how one goes from one beat to another, what she learned on all these different beats, her thoughts on the Mickey Calloway situation. As uh, Chelsea has said, uh, she knows women everywhere in the business who have similar stories. And then we get into a little bit about uh, baseball, what she thinks the biggest story in baseball is and and where baseball might be in terms of marketing its people heading forward. So that's uh, that's the first part. Then after that, Donovan Bennett, host, podcaster, and writer for Sportsnet in Canada, where I think everybody knows I work as well, one of my favorite colleagues up there. We uh, we discuss the nexus of uh, sports and COVID-19 and the coverage, where the coverage of that is now, especially given all the outbreaks that have happened in the NHL, the prospect of the NBA All-Star Game, and the discussion around that. The uh, the China situation when it comes to Beijing 2022 and talk of boycotts and China's human rights violations and how we might want to think about that when we write about that in the media. And then finally, um, Donovan's uh, initiative, which is a BIPOC mentorship pilot program that's starting at Rogers. And uh, the guy's just doing incredible stuff with that. So if you are a, a young person of color who is in the business or wants to get into the business, I would say listen to that part, uh, especially if you're a Canadian, because um, Donovan is doing just some amazing things there. So Chelsea Janes and Donovan Bennett coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Chelsea Janes is now a national baseball writer for the Washington Post. That is a very uh, cool-sounding title. And prior to this, of course, she um, if you read the Washington Post, she covered the 2020 U.S. presidential election. She was assigned to the um, Kamala Harris campaign uh, prior to her uh, leaving the presidential race and then obviously becoming uh, Joe Biden's running mate, and then now, obviously, the vice president of the United States. And I'm pleased to be joined by Chelsea Janes. Chelsea, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's like the godfather, Chelsea. You're like Pacino. You thought, I thought they had pulled you out, but yet now you're back in baseball again. I am. Yeah. You know, when I first moved to politics uh, before, the, before the 2019 start of things, um, you know, I it was sort of like, let's get to the election and see if it's something you want to keep doing or if you want to come back. And um, I learned a lot from it, but it's, I think it's sort of one of those situations where you realize your dream job, maybe when you leave it. Um, and I think for me, I just have grown up so much with baseball, played softball all through college. Um, a lot of my first internships were in baseball. And it's just a world that I, uh, I feel I understand. Um, I love for all its flaws. And I just, I really like being around. And I think it's a time when, you know, the game and, you know, particularly the league is sort of confronting a lot of the issues that we're seeing people grapple with across industries. And um, so it felt like coming to the cover baseball at a time when it was a lot more than just baseball. And, and that intrigued me. Well, let's get into the, here. Here's where I think this would just be interesting for uh, my listeners who like process and, and they're into that kind of stuff. So you were a Nationals beat writer. And then you transition to covering politics, and you've been on this podcast to talk about that. And now you're back to being a, a national baseball writer. So, you know, a, a, once again in baseball, but obviously a bigger job in that you can write about anything now. H- how does that last transition happen? Like, what happens in the post-newsroom or in your uh, professional employment 
where you can do that? Like, do you ask for that switch? Does the post suggest it? How does something like that work? Um, you know, I think we've been really lucky at the post to have a lot of colleagues over the years sort of switch and take unorthodox paths through the newsroom. Um, you know, maybe not quite as unorthodox as mine, but certainly, you know, from news to style to whatever, um, to science, et cetera. So like there's definitely precedent and, and I, it was kind of initially brought to me, Hey, do you want to try politics? And, um, in that conversation before I even went, they were like, if this isn't something you want to do forever, you can go back and, and do sports if that's what you want to do. And it sort of turned out for me that, you know, I, I didn't want to do it forever. And I, I kind of communicated that to them um, as we, you know, wound down in the fall. Um, and yeah, it, it just like was a situation where they, I was fortunate they had room for me uh, back in sports. Um, you know, I had talked about a few other things on the politics side that it would were options, but for me, this, I felt like, you know, frankly, I sort of thought about it from my my perspective uh, in wins above replacement, honestly. Like, I think, um, you know, in politics, I, I worked very, very hard. I learned a whole lot of things. Um, and there are a lot of people at the Washington Post who, who live and breathe that stuff and have their whole lives um, and are just really good at what they do. And I, I'm sure, you know, in time I could get there. But I've always lived and breathed baseball and I, I thought I would grow out of it. And I, I just continue to grow into it. So, um, yeah, I, I I was lucky that they sort of were open to that. And I think a lot of people um, could sort of tell that's where my heart lies and uh, were open to it. So I'm, it's, it was definitely a sort of a mutual conversation the whole way, but um, I'm grateful for the, the opportunities. I want to just ask a couple of quick sort of postmortem questions on this. Now that you're back in sports, what, what was the biggest challenge going from sports to politics for you? I don't know if it was going from sports to politics that made this a challenge or if it was just the way the world changed around me. Um, I think we've all sort of experienced that over the last four years, but, but it was just not knowing what I didn't know. Um, you know, I think we all grow up in our own worlds and, and it takes longer than we would like and more conscious effort than we would like to sort of look around and say, there are all these experiences that I just haven't had that I need to read about that I need to talk to people about. And, and, you know, over the time covering politics, you realize how many angles people can come at these policy decisions from it, It's not, you know, we simplify it to like, Oh my gosh, everyone's mad about something on Twitter. But part of that is because people come at it from such different angles. And I think for me, the challenge was to find those voices, sort of understand the pitfalls, of everything, every candidate from everyone's direction and condense that into something, um, you know, that conveyed the reality of the situation. And, you know, at first that, that was tremendously overwhelming because it's, there's no score, you know, there's no number at the end of the day that you can say this team won and this team lost. There, there are opinions, there are interpretations and people have different experiences with, you know, politics and what it means to their lives. And so for me, just, just broadening the horizons, broadening the way I thought about things um, and understanding, frankly, that I had blind spots I didn't even realize existed, I think are, are things that were challenging, but ultimately just like, I, I can't, I mean, just invaluable experiences to have to go through in terms of thinking about the world and sort of understanding my tiny place in it. <laughs> what, and then conversely, what, what do you think the biggest asset was for you having worked in sports when you made that transition? The two are very similar in that people want to tell you what they want to tell you um, and trust is really earned over time. And so I think for me, jumping into politics, I, I could have been really discouraged early on to be chasing scoops and, and seeing people beat me to things on the beat. And, you know, I, I was, but I think I knew too from baseball that you can't earn trust in these tight circles overnight. And so just sort of playing the long game and, and trying to be um, a consistent operator, I think, you know, I, I was able to sort of, you know, take that approach and eventually sort of build the relationships I needed. So, you know, I think in what, what was a sort of high stakes situation, I was able to apply that, that knowledge because you certainly can't walk into a baseball clubhouse thinking, you know, really anything. Um, and it takes time to get people to tell you things that matter. And, and that's an experience I had in politics too. You were assigned to um, the Harris campaign when they when uh, Kamala Harris was running for president. I wondered at the conclusion of that campaign when she, um, you know, when she uh, withdrew, 
from running for the, the presidency. Did you imagine or envision the prospect of her ultimately being on the Biden ticket and then ultimately becoming vice president of the United States? I did, honestly, um, which I hesitate to say because like I never predict things right. And I really love to throw things out there and hope I get something. But in this case, I, I did have a feeling that she would be back in that conversation um, as soon as it was clear that it was going to be Biden. It, it felt to me like she was probably the natural fit. So I and frankly, the fact that she withdrew so early before a vote had been cast was sort of a signal to me that she wants to, you know, not get beat up in an Iowa caucus and, you know, undermine her legitimacy as a candidate for vice president. So um, I think she was thinking about it. And I certainly wasn't surprised when it happened. That being said, I think, you know, along the way, as, as you know, we went to election night and beyond, it was still um, not not surprising, but just really sort of jarring in a in a neutral way to watch her become vice president of the United States and be in motorcades and on those stages, just because, you know, when we're covering these campaigns, we see these people in Iowa coffee shops, we, you know, pass them the ketchup in a restaurant, you know, I mean, it's just normal interactions. And then suddenly they're, they're in these places. And so it's, that part was really interesting. But I I did think that that she was headed that way. Um, But it's still been, I mean, kind of once in a lifetime to to be up close and, and see it happen. Last one on news, and then we'll we'll morph to baseball and sports. Were you in the Washington Post newsroom on January 6, 2021? I was not. We, I think most of us were home. Can you just give me a sense um, of, and I'm by the way, I don't know if you happened to do a story on that day. I imagine probably almost every reporter was assigned something. But when the U.S. Capitol was being attacked, what is going on if you're a reporter based in Washington, D.C., working at the Washington Post? For me, and I can, I can speak to me, I know I had a lot of people that were out there um, physically out around the Capitol preparing for these marches. Um, and so while we were sort of scrambling on the news side, you know, we're all in Slack kind of trying to figure everything out and who's doing what, and it was sort of all hands on deck. So if, if you're available and can come up for air, you can write about whatever the latest you know, update is. And that was my experience. Certainly, I wasn't covering anything in particular, you know, trying to figure out where Kamala Harris was. But but once she was out of the building, it was just kind of helping out. But I, I know one sort of overwhelming aspect of it that I'll remember, I think, forever is just the terror of seeing colleagues kind of chime in on Slack from undisclosed locations. Like, I can't tell you where I are, where I am. I don't really have service, but we're okay. Or, you know, people kind of out and about saying, you know, I couldn't send anything before. Um, looks like there's a lot of people headed this way. I'm going to try to get closer. And you're, and you're, first of all, just thinking about the courage as I'm sitting at home and, you know, kind of like, oh my gosh, these people are, are really of a special mindset. But I think really just like, it was a lot of like, are you okay? Um, as much as it was news scrambling. And that was an experience that frankly, I don't think many of us who have covered things in the United States full time, in our careers have experienced. I know I'm sure people that go abroad have done so, but it was a, yeah, it was a really tense day and a scary one, frankly. Appreciate you sharing that. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's switch to baseball. Have you been given a charter by the Post? Or is the charter that you can pretty much write about anything you want, given that national means everything? I think definitely more the latter. You know, we sort of talk through every every little thing. Um, I think, you know, the, the lines get drawn at column versus reporting. I'm definitely a reporter, not trying to offer opinions. And so that's 
that's sort of um, not a limiting factor, but goes into who writes about what. And so, you know, from that perspective, you know, that's a conversation we have about almost everything. But yeah, I think I think the goal is to look big, you know, to, to look at everything that Major League Baseball is, is dealing with right now, which is a lot. It's a mirror of the country and, and world really in that way. And so, um, yeah, just kind of see where it takes me. But we, uh, everything has been just a little bit discombobulated in the COVID era, as I'm sure you can understand. So, so far we've been mostly consumed with where to go or if to go to spring trading and things like that. But I think, you know, overall the goal is to, to look at some of the big issues and how they intersect with with the very strange world of baseball. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because literally that my sort of next question is going to be about travel. And one, what what are your thoughts on travel? And two, you know, the, the real reality is that in, you know, pre-COVID times, a, a national baseball writer would do a lot of traveling. Now you got to factor in, do I travel? One, two, if I travel, there's a lot of protocols that I'm going to have to probably do in order to do this job. And the reality is I still will not get one-on-one access with people. So what's your calculus on that right now? It's in flux, um, which is horrible for my stress levels because spring training starts in, uh, you know, 10 days or whatever, if it, if it starts on time, but you know, the teams are even grappling with like what that access will look like with, you know, if, if there's two reporters that do decide to travel, do they get interviews or will that encourage people to make the unsafe decision to travel? You know, what, so I, I'm sort of still figuring that out. I, you know, when I kind of imagine this job, was very excited to camp out in Florida for three weeks, in Arizona for three weeks, and, you know, get some sun and, and bop by everyone's camp. But like you say, there's not going to be access. So are you, are you putting yourself and others at risk um, when you could do it over Zoom? That's sort of what we're trying to figure out. But I, I certainly think that early on, um, we won't travel as much as we would normally. I personally, you know, the, the post has been, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but tremendous in terms of saying like, look, if you don't want to travel, don't travel. Like, don't put your families at risk. We'll figure it out. Um, and so I think for me, like I was willing to drive places, but not fly. And, and Arizona and Florida are a long way to drive, but maybe, you know, we'll get to a point where we're comfortable doing that. Um, so it's, it's really all up in the air. And I know the teams don't really even know what it's going to look like. So um, I'm hoping that by the time we're in the playoffs, I can, I can, you know, make the late night flights from city to city for, you know, series to series. But until then, I'm, you know, probably going to make a lot of East Coast short drive trips and try to pick up teams when I can. What do you consider the most interesting story in baseball right now? It's a great question. I, I feel like, I don't know. I, I think that for me, the, the prevalence of sexual harassment is not interesting, but an inevitable reckoning that I think baseball sort of skipped over when everyone else was having the Me Too stuff a couple years ago. I think they got, you know, some sense of it. But I, in that time, 2017, 2018, you know, I remember thinking, like, this is bigger and there's going to become a time when this is going to be a big issue. And I think we might be there now. Um, I think there's sort of, you know, a little bit more of a, a safety net for people who come forward. We've seen some really great reporters from The Athletic um, who've made a lot of women feel comfortable sort of telling those stories. So I think that's I think that's coming. I don't know if that's interesting as much as it is important and inevitable. Um, I don't, you know, so that that's part of it. I also think that, that race is a big deal in baseball. I think it's something, you know, that as the country has dealt with it, it just sort of seems to be this... Um, you know, certainly the league dealt with it at times last year, you know, with protests and then, you know, putting BLM on the mounds and things like that. But I, I think baseball clubhouses are sort of a unique convergence of cultures, very much like the country, as corny as that sounds, where you have guys from Latin America who, you know, literally, you know, grow up here under the tutelage of these clubs. And, you know, you've got a lot of like high school kids coming out of, you know, without college experience, without ever leaving their hometowns, you sort of get to this level and um, they all converge. And obviously black participation is down. Minority hiring needs to go up. Um, and I do think that all really, really matters. And people are starting to finally talk about it. I think in baseball, so much of getting through life in a baseball clubhouse is not talking about it, whatever it is, whether it's an injury, a problem, an argument, you know, discrimination, you just don't talk about it. And that's changing. And so I think for me, that's interesting to see 
you know, that reckoning that's coming. I don't think it necessarily has to be dramatic and, you know, anything like that. But I think there will be a slow, um, you know, dribble sort of, of, of changes. And I think we're already seeing them. And I, you know, it's, it's overdue and baseball is one of the, the last sports to sort of deal with it. And I think it's going to be a, a, a game changer for lack of a better word. You had a, tw- a thread on Twitter about Mickey Calloway where you wrote, I know so many women who report on baseball have stories somewhere along the sexual harassment gradient. I certainly have plenty. What I don't think people fully grasp is how widespread this is. Can you shine some light on how widespread this is? Yeah, I think I certainly don't have data to prove this. Um, but I can honestly say I've never talked to a woman who covers baseball who hasn't had a story. Um, and again, like I think part of what we need to, to do better in talking about this is recognizing that just because these aren't like sexual assault stories, you know, they're, they're small, they're texts, they're inappropriate comments, they're, you know, things like that, that just change the dynamic um, for, for women in sports. And so I think everyone that I've ever talked to has had one of those experiences on the baseball side. I know team employees have had them, you know, it's just, it's a constant. And I think, you know, I personally, having spent so much of my life thinking about baseball, you know, sort of knew when I, when I came into the game that that was going to be something you dealt with. And um, now I'm sort of looking back and saying, should I have said more, you know, but ultimately that stuff didn't prevent me from doing my job. And you sort of go back and forth. And, um, but I, I worry more about people who come into the sport sort of wide eyed and, and not necessarily knowing that, that that's coming and, and the effect it might have on their career or, or, you know, whether they look at themselves and say that I do something wrong. So um, I think it's really widespread. I think a lot of people are just used to it. Um, and that is only the fault of the people who do it, you know, um, like it's, it's, it's so widespread, I would say that it's sort of unimaginable to people who work at a normal workplace. You know, like I can say, honestly, at the Washington Post, that if something, if somebody made some comments that they make in baseball clubhouses, I would, I think that it would be a huge deal if anyone overheard it, you know, and in baseball, it's just sort of like, that's their space, boys will be boys. And I think that's changing. So it's very widespread. I, I would not be surprised to hear a lot more stories come out as people feel comfortable telling them. Um, but a, it's hard to get comfortable telling them, especially when those people are still employed and you need to talk to them for your job and be, um, you know, it's, it, it really varies by team of, of whether you trust that talking about it will matter. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a constant for women in sports in a way that I think people will come to understand. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that. You, as we, uh, as we taped this podcast on February 5th, 2021 in the morning, uh, Mickey Calloway is still employed by the angels. And that might be, you know, there may be some legal parts to that given whatever the contract is, you know, how one could be dismissed or not legally, but are, are you surprised? I'm not. Um, I, I want to be, but I'm not, I, I do think it might be more procedural than like a huge moral failing on their part. I mean, you could argue that it's a moral failing not to do it right away, but I, I do understand that there are machinations that have to happen and maybe they have to investigate and say, yeah, like we have this grounds to do this, but I certainly believe that all that happened. I think what really is jarring about that situation is that he denied it. And I, you know, just blatantly sort of denied evidence that at least to me and, you know, from what I know of the reporters who shared it, it's, it's sort of hard to dispute. Um, so it's, that, that is the, the part about this that I, that I hope becomes obvious to people is that it's, it's that obvious, like it's that stupid, you know, it's like, it's, it is a conversation that starts nowhere and is all of a sudden a picture like the ones that Mickey Calloway sent. And you're just like, what, like, what, what is happening here? And then, you know, it is as stupid as that denial of like, wait, we can see this, you know, it's, it's that galling. And I think, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's a mindset that's been cultivated over the years, but I'm not surprised he's still there. But I, I honestly, I really don't expect him to be there that long. I think any, you know, if they keep him after this, that would be horrible, but it's hard to imagine. I agree. That's well said. A uh, last one for me is, you know, there's always, uh, there's always these stories about baseball and like, where's baseball's place in the, 
in the American sporting consciousness and it's, you know, is baseball dead? Is baseball alive? I mean, the reality is like baseball is going to outlast me and you. Like, I can't tell you how popular it will be. What I can guarantee is that it will exist. When you look at the game sort of overall, like one of the, one of the things to me that, and I know this question sort of gets asked all the time, and I'm not asking you to solve this. I just, I'd be just curious, just sort of your thought process on this. Like, I'm still blown away by the fact that in 2021, there's still a discussion as to like how to market Fernando Tatis Jr. better or how to market Mookie Betts better. Like the NBA has sort of figured this out, that the player is a, is a brand or a commodity or of great interest like two people, like whether it's Kevin Durant or whether it's like the 10th guy in the NBA bench who is like a phenomenal dresser who comes to the arena and like rules Instagram or rules social media. Why at this point, like has baseball, like not figure it out in a bigger way, how to promote its like best assets and its best assets are like really good assets in sports. Like you know, like Aaron Judge hitting a home run like 5,000 feet is like interesting just as a sport thing. And Fernando Tatis playing the way he does is like just, it's just interesting as a sporting concept. But yet, I just, and again, this is a little editorializing by me, but they, they have not solved that like forever. What's your thought on that? I have a lot of big picture thoughts. I've never really looked at sort of the shortcomings of MLB's marketing on stars compared to other leagues in any sort of like logistical terms. But I think for me, what the league needs to do, and I actually think with Tatis, they're starting to realize and do is you have to facilitate cool. And baseball is a sport that facilitates homogeny, frankly, right? Like there's like a conversation that is had every time someone flips a bat of whether they should have flipped a bat. You know, you don't get a Ken Griffey, like, guy with his hat backwards who's totally different anymore because these guys are sort of brought up to be the same and and be part of, you know, a grind. And Tatis isn't that guy, but Mike Trout is that guy. So as great a baseball player as Mike Trout is, he's he's not trying to be cool. He's not trying to be above his team, and that's admirable. (laughs) You know, in baseball, you know, honorifics. But for months, you need to let these guys be themselves. Tim Anderson has been so much fun to watch. And you've got to both facilitate that and hype it up and get rid of the conversation about whether it's good or bad for baseball, because I don't think that's much of a discussion. Um, So, you know, and Aaron Judge is an interesting case, too. You know, in New York, it should be easy, but he's, you know, there are definitely some things they can do better. But from my perspective, I think one of them is just to, like, let people have fun. I mean, I've watched some of the Caribbean Series games, um, even some of the Korean games, you know, in their World Series. It's just like pure joy, you know, and I do think that matters because I I think if you, you know, compared to the NBA, you know, where you have people with their own shoes, with their own, you know, whatever they want on the back of their jersey is sort of their own persona. Like, um, I think you can let people get bigger than their team and, and have that be a good thing. And so um, I think they're getting there. I think people like Tatis will help. I think Bud Guerrero Jr. and sort of this next generation can really help, but that's one thought. Um, and the other thing I think that baseball is dealing with that everyone is sort of dealing with is just like the compartmentalization of our entertainment. You know, I think like there are very few things that are as universally popular as like baseball once was back in the day, you know, that it's really hard to sort of break people out of the bubbles that they, they go into. So, you know, if there's a kid whose friends are all big NBA fans and, and grew up watching the NBA, I don't know how you sort of penetrate that these days because, you know, it's not like people are flipping through channels and there's all these baseball games on or, you know, it's not like, I don't know. I, you know, I think they could do a lot better job putting baseball players in non-baseball marketing situations. Um, but yeah, I, I just think there's a, there's a lot there, but there are personalities that should, that have arrived despite baseball's sort of emphasis on, on depersonalizing people. Um, and I think um, they need to just be, totally, you know, flaunted and, and allowed to dictate where this goes. Yeah. I, uh, given I live here, keep, keep your eye north of the border yep. for that Blue Jays yep. lineup. You may be writing about, you may be writing about them over the next couple totally. of years. It's good. It's, uh, but the Padres, the White Sox, a lot of, it's kind of cool. Like one thing about baseball this year that I really like is, uh, 
there's some teams that really are about like on the cusp of emerging mm -hmm. big time beyond, you know, the Yankees and the Dodgers. So it's actually a pretty cool year or maybe a cool couple of years actually to cover the sport. Uh, Chelsea James is now the national baseball writer for the Washington Post. And prior to that, if you go into her archives, you could read all her work about the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Uh, she's had one of the most interesting career journeys in the last two or three years. So I, that's why I really appreciate her coming on to discuss it. Chelsea, I'll definitely be reading your work from afar. And um, thanks so much for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. The continued success and and stay vigilant out there if you end up traveling. Definitely. It's, uh, Definitely. Yeah, that's that's good. That's that's going to be a crazy year for reporters who who have to travel for baseball. But uh, but thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. All right. As I said at the top, uh, Donovan Bennett is a host, a podcaster, and a writer for Sportsnet in Canada. I believe his official title is Senior Writer and Host. Obviously, for full disclosure, we worked together. We co-hosted the Sports on Pause podcast for, uh, I don't know how long that was, Donovan, six months or so. We've worked together on uh, the radio it uh, at Sportsnet 590 in Toronto uh, many times, and he's one of my favorite colleagues up there. And pleased to be joined once again by Donovan Bennett of Sportsnet. Donovan, you're—I mean, you are a busy person in Toronto, so I—I I appreciate you taking the time to come on this this very niche podcast. Listen, never too busy for you. And basically, this is like a get out of jail free card where I don't have to watch my son. I could put all of that responsibility on my wife. Because, hey, I have to talk to Richard Dice. He is literally a media maker in North America. So you, my friend, are doing me a service, not the other way around, as we all are trying to figure out how we work from home and also um, have a family life. Um, but, but more importantly, you said one of your favorite colleagues. I, I just want to unpack that a little bit more, if we can double-click on that. So what's the depth chart exactly? And, and you could throw in athletic colleagues as well. Well, where am I, you know, am I coming off the bench? Am I a DNPC? Exactly where am I? You're definitely a starter on that. By the way, you're, I had a good relationship with your wife prior to this podcast, so there you go. Um, yeah, I, um, no, you're, you're definitely a starter on that, on that list. I'm not going to rank them because there's really not a number one colleague that I have for sure, like who's the, you know, the LeBron or Anthony Davis of that list. But yeah, you're, you're, de you're not coming off the bench. You're not. You're not uh, Malachi Flynn, you know. You're not Chris Boucher. You're, you know, you're 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 Kyle Lowry or Pascal or or OG. But I'll take a Juan Toscano Anderson. I'll be happy with that. And, by the way, for people who like maybe turn the volume down a little bit on the podcast and then turned it back up and only heard, I had a good relationship with your wife before this podcast. Just scroll back so you get the context because that <laughs> alone, as a soundbite, sounds very weird. Context is very, very important. Yeah, we're talking, of course, professional relationship. Uh, all right. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, we have a number of topics, but we did do this podcast where we examine the nexus of sports and COVID-19 at, uh, I don't even know if it's sort of fair to say at the beginning of the pandemic, because the you know who knows when the pandemic truly started. But we had this podcast that we did for like a very short run podcast intentionally for Rogers in, in 2020. And we had a lot of epidemiologists and a lot of people in sports who were trying to combat this and, and figure stuff out. We no longer do this podcast, Donovan. And so as I talked to you in early February of 2021, and as we're taping this, 
There are NHL teams that are missing a ton of time. We've seen COVID positives in uh, all across college sports. Uh, the NFL has done a pretty good job. At least they've gotten to the end with the Super Bowl. And the NBA obviously has had its own issues. How would you view the media coverage right now of this nexus of sports and COVID? Do you, do you think outlets in North America are doing well with this? Or are they battling fatigue and, and not covering it perhaps the way it really should be covered? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think early... Um, you know, the topic and the state um, was so uh, really depressing and negative that we literally shy away from, from, from talking about the sports angles of things and, and leading with those because it seems trivial. And now we've got to a place where some of the leading sports angles are tied to COVID-19, right? Like who can exactly interview for a job and how that is going to happen? How are the combines going to happen? Will that change the draft stock of not being able to, you know, uh, be in a room and grill people as, as John Gruden famously did and made a segment out of it. And even things like, man, what a close scare. Adam Schefter is going to give you the breaking news on not only was the Kansas City Chiefs barber uh, positive after days of, of negative tests, but Patrick Mahomes was in the queue. He was X amount of people away from getting his hair cut, and, man, how would that have changed the Super Bowl? And then if we're going to throw another layer of nuance on that, how has that changed betting and the lines and daily fantasy as, as we were being more comfortable in having those conversations baked into our natural sports conversation. It, it's not this thing that we're, we're doing, you know, under the, the cloud of some darkness. I, I, I do think that, that that marriage is becoming a little bit closer where we're directly linking the conversation of who is available as to how things are going to play out on the court. Team X only has nine guys that can dress. So X amount of them are big men. So team Y is going to really look to go into the post and abuse them. And, and they've got a back to back it's the baseball style again, because of COVID. So you're going to really see them get out and run and, and test those legs, not just for the first game, for the second game. Like it's part of our analysis. It's part of our reporting where um, I think early it was separate. We were talking about how COVID might impact the world and thus sports and then returning but we didn't really want to talk about the X's and O's because they seem trivial. Now, in fact, they are impacting the games, and so they're, they're a big part of, of how we report on the sport. You know, I asked you that because the, as you know, literally in the, over the last 24 hours regarding this taping, the NBA talked about, or as I guess finalized, the date of what would be a potential one-day All-Star game. And LeBron James and others have been pretty adamant about like maybe this is not a good idea. I don't know if LeBron's is is more about uh, rest versus COVID, but I'm sure there are going to be many people who, within the NBA circles and certainly NBA writers, who say like, what? Why do this added risk this year? Uh, what's your thought on this game? You you have a podcast, a basketball podcast on Sportsnet with JD Bunkus, and you're a longtime basketball writer and observer. Where where do you where do you stand on the idea of doing a one day All Star game this year? Well, I mean, I think the why is clear, right? De'Aaron Fox was very um, pointed in the fact that he thought the entire thing was stupid, but the entire thing is happening for money. It's the exact same reason why the season uh, was I won't say rushed, but it was rushed to start not on MLK Day as some of the players thought, but you know right before Christmas Day, because that, that is a big financial driver for the league and for the broadcast partners. And in the same way, the All-Star Game is a tentpole event, one that you thought would go away just because you're looking at doing the bare minimum, the necessity to be able to hand out the Larry O'Brien trophy as close to on schedule as possible. Well, this is above and beyond a necessity, except if you are Turner, who says, hey, we could do it in Atlanta. And even though the real housewives of courtside are screaming at LeBron without a mask on, and that's highly problematic, we could do it in Atlanta. We could have our broadcasters there. Um, when you're talking about n- not just the partners in terms of broadcast, the partners in terms of industry, sponsors, and specifically, I think this is a conversation that's being lost, the shoe companies. 
the All-Star Weekend was always a day to, for shoe companies to release new shoes, new initiatives, but also to release a specific colorway in addition of a shoe. And now with no All-Star Game, even though these, these launches are being planned years in advance before anyone would have known anything about COVID-19, never mind the fact that you may or may not have an All-Star Game in 2021, that's a missed opportunity for partners, partners in shoe companies who do a great job of promoting the sport for the league for free. So no matter what the players think, um, you know, in terms of why we're even talking about this is because if it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense. And this is something that certainly is a revenue generator and a conversation starter. And thus, this is why we're talking about it. I'm really surprised that the league that came out and almost built a brand about how they were going to be bullish about being very safe around COVID-19 and very responsible. And the bubble was going to be airtight and they were not going to take tests away from, you know, everyday citizens. In fact, they were going to donate tests uh, that they wanted to be used as an example of how the rest of the world and other industries could return to work safely, that they're the ones really pushing the needle on what is necessary. I'm, 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 I'm frankly shocked, but at the end of the day, when you, when you look at the, the, you know, the black and the red in terms of profit margin, um, you know, there's a clear answer as to why it's a discussion. Yeah, that's well said um, on all that. I want to do one more um, sort of one more large picture sports topic, and then we'll get into the mentorship program that you have started at Rogers, which I, I just think is really interesting. It goes actually far beyond our company. It's a, it's a really important sports journalism initiative. One of the topics that's been uh, certainly discussed on Canadian Sports Talk Radio, Donovan, I don't honestly know if it's hit the States yet. In fact, quite frankly, I don't think it has, and I'm not sure when it will, but it's the... It's the upcoming 2022 Beijing Olympics, and we we just passed the one year uh, one year out mark, and that's interesting because even Tokyo hasn't existed yet. But one year away from the start of the Beijing Olympics, very big topic in Canada, of course, because the NHL players are back and and or or should be back, and that'll change the change the calculus of the Olympics in terms of interest for Canadian fans. But the discussion up here has been about China. And China's terrible record when it comes to human rights and whether there should be a discussion of countries boycotting the Olympics, in particular Canada. Canadian Olympic Committee has made very clear that they're not going down that road. They, the Canadian government at this point has given you no indication as to whether they would support any kind of boycott. I think a boycott is not going to happen. And there's certainly some question as to whether a boycott would have true impact on a you know, mighty business economy like China. How, how can we discuss this in a, like in an intelligent way? Because there will be people who just, you know, they'll bad faith it and just sort of like blast anybody who doesn't blast China while still buying an iPhone. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it would be nice if like there could be a legitimate, interesting discussion on this because it's a legitimate, interesting discussion. To me, the issue has always been, it's the IOC that's willing to put their product in authoritarian countries. They'll take money from anybody. So you really leave the athletes of the world very little choice if you're the IOC and you put your your games here and then you you know, you make that claim, well, we're opening the world up and this is a really good thing. I mean, has Russia really changed since Sochi? You know, has China since changed since Beijing? And I would argue not really. Uh, but where do you see it? How do you see it? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a good point. And, you know, I I think maybe you know part of the reason you know, why that it's been more of a, a talking point uh, in Canada because you know over the last year plus the relationship between Canada and China politically has been a conversation because of hostage diplomacy and two Canadians that are in detention uh, in China and so we're constantly evaluating what that relationship looks like uh, in in terms of sports how we have the conversation I think. You have to have it honestly, and you have to have it knowing that um, you yourself are not holier than thou, and that we all have bias, and we all are intrinsically motivated to want to see things with rose-colored glasses in directions that are most convenient for us. And if we are going to, especially you know, coming off of you know what 2020 was, if we were going to say, you know what, 
we really support. We love all of these athletes standing up, taking a stand on social injustice and, and using their their privilege and their opportunity, their platform for good. And then NBA players boycotting games. And then we, we saw the ripple effects across sports, across the world. If we're going to stand up and applaud and cheer for that, should we not apply some of the same sensibilities and some of the same thoughts and expressions to the very real, very credible, very long-standing human rights issues that are going on uh, in China in relation to Beijing specifically? So certainly, uh, I think, um, you know, for us in North America, both, you know, as media members, but as a collective whole, we, we do have an out of sight, out of mind, uh, you know, aspect to that, which is why, you know, Daryl Morey bringing it up and, and tweeting it and then everyone connecting the dots as to how many different things that impacted and how reliant we, we really are with our relationship with China financially and otherwise um, was a shock to the system. And I, I think, you know, smart minds can differ, right? You know, Daryl Morey certainly has a, a, a viewpoint that maybe, maybe he doesn't, uh, regret expressing, um, you know, but at the same time, Joe Tsai in the Brooklyn Nets has a viewpoint um, given his sensibilities and his experience. And I think once we all come to the table, understanding that we do come to it with bias. And that, again, we all um, can be somewhat hypocritical and don't have maybe as much plausible deniability as we hope. I think then we can you know, cover it honestly and cover it fairly. I, I, I cannot say, you know what, athletes, you need to put your morals uh, in, in front of your money and you need to take a stand for what's going on in China, knowing that some of the sneakers that I have in my house and some of the electronics that I have in my house got here uh, from China and maybe not in the most ethical of ways. So I, I think we all need to, to, to be honest about exactly what are we personally willing to give up um, in our own lives, and then uh, look through that lens in terms of evaluating what the athletes are or aren't willing to give up and how forcefully they're speaking on issues, even if we're not as well-versed on them as we are on some of them that are going on in North America day-to-day. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One of the things that is really important to you is to find, find visibility and give black content creators uh, a space to... Uh, to show their work, to, to, you know, uh, to be, to be, to be seen basically. And you are starting, uh, what, and if correct me, if I'm, if like the title of this is not right, but it's a BIPOC mentorship pilot program where you're going to find young writers of color. I assume we want to go into sports throughout Canada and placing them in a program where they can, they can market themselves. They can meet mentors in the business. They can probably get contacts for jobs that they might not have. There is something similar in the States, uh, Sports Journalism Institute, which is co-founded by one of my mentors, Sandy Rosenbush. She now works at ESPN. Greg Lee, who's now at the Boston Globe. Leon Carter, who's now at The Athletic. And this, like, the list of graduates from this place is incredible. Like, they've just gone on to, like, mega massive jobs in the sports media business. So I, I'm, I think just for our audience, and if there's any young journalists of color in, in Canada in particular who are listening to this, what, what is this program that you, that you have started and, and how did you conceive it? Yeah, well, I mean, we haven't settled on a name internally. Uh, we've just kind of been referring to it as we get it ready, the Donovan Bennett Project. So I am going to allow your audience to help us crowdsource a name so we can figure out what we want to call it. But, but most importantly, you know, so we've talked about um, our collective coverage of um, issues around uh, race and equality and how they connect and intersect with sport. I certainly have covered it um, for quite some time and, and maybe more of a spotlight and, and maybe more of a willing audience, uh, you know, went towards that coverage. Um, 
this past summer. But, you know, I, when George Floyd died on Memorial Day and, you know, earlier in the day when Amy Cooper weaponized the blackness of Christian Cooper, um, I originally said to myself, you know what, I'm, I'm going to check out. I'm not going to cover it. There's no real sports tie-in here. I, I felt like a lot of people were being opportunistic and performative when I didn't hear them talk about Ahmaud Arbery before that. Um, and, 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 you know, a, a collection of um, black journalists that, um, you know, I'm close with, we all got on a Zoom call, and they kind of implored me to do the opposite, that, listen, this could be uh, a real tool to, for some learning and some understanding. So I, I dove deep in, and I, I, I basically spoke my truth. And, you know, what I learned was some people learned from it, and some people felt some representation from it. But ultimately, I felt like at some point, as I looked at my mentions and I looked at the comments, I, I was just putting kindling on the fire for more people on others, either side of the aisle to argue, right? People who were inclined to agree with what I was writing would champion it and share it, and it would get likes and clicks and make my employer some money. But people who disagreed would say that I'm playing the race card or race baiting or I'm a diversity hire or token hire, and, uh, and they would just bash it and thus bash me. And I was like, wait, am I helping? Am I, am I additive by this coverage? So not that I'm absolving myself from doing the work of covering it. I felt like, okay, there's got to be more that, that I can do to find a positive outcome. And I really found that there weren't a lot of people in sports specifically that I could share that experience with, that I could share that burden with, that I could talk and commiserate with. And, and certainly there were no, none above me. I've, I've never had uh, a, a black manager, a, a black editor black executive producer and anything that I've done in the industry. And I was like, clearly this has to change, right? If, if my dumbass can somehow uh, rise to a spot where I've got a little bit of a platform, there's so many other people who are smarter, um, you know, just as well-intentioned um, and have a, as much, if not more to give that should be given an opportunity. So I decided I'm going to try to use some of my leverage in my platform and not so much to put stuff out, but to reach back. And the personal mentorship, you know, opportunities that I have with, with people, um, and, and by and large, people who reach out to me for advice, they, they are, you know, black or, or BIPOC. They share my, my pigment. And the questions that they ask a little bit sometimes is about my story and how I got to where I, I am. But most of the times, it's nothing about the actual technical aspects of doing the job. It's entirely opposite. It's about code switching, you know, compartmentalizing things, how you deal with people, how you make contacts and network. How do you exist in an overly white space? One of the last old boys clubs that we have in, in society is media and specifically in sports. It was some of the soft skills that they didn't get traditionally from places like the country club or the golf course or the cottage or just from being a legacy family and having family members or friends who are already in the industry who could give them a leg up, give them an opportunity. And so I said to myself, is there a way given the people that I know from being in, in the industry and some of the resources that we have at Rogers sports and media and Sportsnet to fast track some of that learning to give them just a, a, a quick understanding uh, and really erase some of the doubt that they have about how they approach people, how they make contact with networks, you know, how they handle themselves, how they advocate for themselves without seeing to be too formal or, or, or how they hold a tough line without being the angry black person in the room. I was thought to myself, how can we give them some of this knowledge so that number one, when they do get an opportunity, they can hit the ground running with it, that they can be a star in the world, that they can not just survive in the industry, because that's what I feel like a lot, what a lot of us BIPOC people are doing. We're trying to survive. We're trying to tread water, if you will. It's learning on the job, you sink or swim in, in deep waters with sharks around you. I, I don't want that to be the experience for people coming after me, because it doesn't have to be. I want them not to survive in the industry, but to thrive in the industry. And so that's what we've, we've done. And, and people like yourself have been so gracious with, with their time and their expertise and their knowledge to give back and to answer some questions and eliminate some of that doubt. I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again. One of the 
biggest difficulties of, of being a racialized person in our industry is not the work, it's the ghost that haunts you, never knowing, well, did I not get that opportunity because of the color of my skin? Does this hiring manager not see themselves in me and thus I didn't get an opportunity? Or am I just not good enough, right? And self-assessment in all roles, specifically in our industry, is so key. And, and so I hopefully am going to try and eliminate some of that ghost for them so they can be freed just to do the work. And as you know, um, that's when you're best, when you feel totally free at ease and you bring yourself and all your personal sensibilities to your writing, to your producing, and to your on-air work. What's your hope for numbers, like for your first class or the first group? How many... How many young people are you hoping to get? Yeah, so it's a mixture of, um, you know, some partnerships with some local uh, universities here in Canada. Rogers has a long um, relationship with Ryerson University. So, so that's one university who's giving us some candidates. Brock University has done a lot in the IND space. So we're, we're tapping in uh, with them as well. And then a lot of people that, you know, I personally mentored that would be a good fit for the program because, you know, if they can get mentorship from a bunch of people in the industry, not just from me, they'd be much better off. But one of our mandates, and it was a goal for us that we were hoping to hit, and then it came directly from the top in our president, Jordan Banks, is that, it's going to be 50-50. It's going to be um, balanced in terms of gender. Um, and, and, you know, in this initial phase, um, we're keeping it pretty, pretty small. We have around 14 to 16 kids, you know, small sessions with seven or eight kids in a session. Um, because I, I do want it to be a safe, open space where they can ask any sort of question. There is no such thing as a dumb question without a lot of prying eyes. And I do also hope that they amongst themselves create a little bit of a coalition, a little bit of a working group, and that there can be some lateral mentorship uh, amongst themselves, and they can help each other as they get through things. Um, because, you know, uh, you're a great example for me. Relationships are our greatest currency in life, but specifically in this industry. And I want this group um, to create some great relationships amongst each other because they are much stronger and powerful together united as they are individually. So to start, we're, we're going to keep it pretty small. But once we get out of this COVID reality, the, the intention and the goal is it for to be much bigger, uh, to be able to fly kids from all across the country into Toronto, um, to have this kind of incubator experience, and then to, to send them off, you know, almost with a gala where they can put what they've learned to use and, and, you know, everyone, you know, from across the industry can show up, meet them to get first right of refusal to see who the next great stars in our industry are that are BIPOC as they look to make their newsrooms more diverse. Um, and the eventual goal, and, and this is a much bigger goal uh, for this than it was uh, when I was jotting notes on my iPhone about what this could and should be, you know, the eventual goal, you know, for, for Jordan Banks and our leadership is for this to be so big that eventually it's a conference at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, think of a TED Talk, you know, it's a brand name and people from across the world understand it, recognize it, and want to be a part of it. Um, so we're certainly not there yet, but I'm excited to, to hit the ground running and, and really meet and learn from the young kids who are trying to get in the industry. Because, as you know, our industry is rapidly changing. We're going to need them and lean on them in terms of where we should go so that, you know, part of the reporting that you and others uh, are doing constantly is not massive layoffs that we're constantly seeing as we struggle to keep our finger on the pulse on how we should be presenting content and making our industry profitable. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's it's an incredible blueprint you have. I, I would suggest maybe the Staples Center as opposed to Madison Square Garden, just like l make the weather a little bit better for people, Donovan. All right. Donovan Bennett is a, uh, he is a host. He is a podcaster, a writer. For Sportsnet in Canada, follow him on Twitter at D-O-N-N-O-V-A-N-B-E-N-N-E-T-T. -N -N -E Let me do that again. D-O-N-N-O-V-A-N-B-E-N-N-E-T-T. -N -N -E one of the uh, one of the best we got at Sportsnet. Donovan, it's always great to catch up with you. I'm uh, I'm I'm hoping one day we'll see each other in person in in a post-COVID world. Uh, keep up the great work, and thanks so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Likewise, my friend. Continue to do what you're doing. It's so important. So thank you for having me to be part of this conversation. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chelsea Janes and to Donovan Bennett for their time and insight to interesting people doing very interesting things in the sports media business. 
If you like this podcast, please leave us a review. Uh, Five-star review and a, and a nice note is always appreciated and definitely helps keep this podcast on the air. That's, uh, that's how it remains. The, uh, the last couple interviews that we've done, or the last couple, I should say, podcasts that we've had, Sports, da- Sports Business Daily media writer John Orand on uh, NBCSN shuttering and what it means for the NHL moving forward. A couple of uh, conversations as well on NFL media. I think you'll enjoy that. Prior to that, Rhiannon Walker and Britt Giroli of The Athletic and Jane McManus of Deadspin as well as uh, Marist College. We had a long roundtable discussion on the Jared Porter story. This was actually before the Mickey Calloway story and sexual harassment of female sports reporters, and uh, they were unbelievable. I mean, just beyond honest about their experiences. I can't thank them enough. That's well. That's one well worth checking out. And then before that, Noah Eagle on um, calling the Nickelodeon game, and uh, you know what that was, um, what that challenge and 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 fun assignment was like for him. And then Ryan Clark, who is part of the Athletic, he covers the Seattle Kraken and covers the NHL. Talked about covering a team. In, NHL team in Seattle that doesn't exist and people of color in the NHL uh, media. I think you'll find that interesting. And then before that, James Andrew Miller, Renee Paquette, and just go down the list of, uh, of all the guests that we've had. Hopefully you'll find something interesting there. I uh, want to thank Patrick and Bob for producing this podcast. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13, from Chris Corcoran to Spencer Brown to John McDermott. And of course, thank you, the audience, for listening. We will see you very soon on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.